but it is so good to be here gathered for church this morning. I'm so glad that you could be participating in our service here at True North. And you know, my prayer is that already you felt and experienced something of the presence of God in your life. Now, can I be honest and say, for the last couple of Monday nights, I've been having a difficult time. And I know there's a certain demographic of people, you know what I'm talking about. Because for a wonderful string of evenings on Monday nights, we got to experience the docuseries, The Last Dance. Now, if you're a fan of basketball or a fan of sport, this was just like the best thing ever. And if you're unfamiliar with it, it was telling the story of the incredible success of the 1990s Chicago Bulls. And of course, their, their transcendent star, Michael Jordan, widely considered to be the greatest of all time, sometimes affectionately known as the GOAT. And in fact, talking about GOATs and MJ, can we do something fun in the comment section really quick? Now, there's a bit of an argument about the greatest of all time, and there's two major camps, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. So if you want to throw out on the comment section who you think is the GOAT, you can put an MJ or an LJ with a little GOAT emoji. I'm pretty sure a GOAT emoji is a thing. If not, find an animal that looks like a GOAT and we can clear up this argument once and for all. But that's not particularly relevant. So MJ, the 90s Bulls, incredible levels of success. Now, when I was watching this series and watching the success of this team and engaging with it, something really interesting happened in my life. I turned to my wife and knowing fully that I'm 36 years old, that I'm five foot 11, I turned to my wife and I said, Tash, is it crazy? This might be crazy. But is it too late for me to make the NBA? I think I can do it. If I just work really hard, I can get out there. I can make the NBA. And she's like, Phil, you know I love you so much, right? And straight away, I'm like, okay, that's a no. That's a no. But did you guys find that as you're watching a show like that, you're like, you know, we're not thinking we're going to make the NBA necessarily. But I'm like, man, I just need to get a basketball in my hands. I just got to work hard. I got to practice. I've got to go and do something right now. Now, the reason I had that emotional response is because there's something about incredible success that is both inspirational and also aspirational. You watch it, you experience, you're like, I want a measure of that in my own life. Because here's the thing about success. I've got a hypothesis for us this morning. Can we have a hypothesis here at True North Church today? Here's my hypothesis, that frameworks of success... Frameworks of success actually motivate behavior in who we are. Now, I think about Michael Jordan. He was constantly constructing frameworks of success that would drive his behavior. You might have seen some of the, the memes coming out around the last dance. There'll be a picture of MJ, and it'd be like, one of the guys from the other team said, what's up before the game? And I took it personal, and I went and won, won six championships. He'd continually be constructing these frameworks of success that would help him to build behaviors that would allow him to achieve as an incredible basketballer. So here's my thought today. What does it look like to be successful in our lives? Now, and more specifically, I want to add a question that's going to be, perhaps for some of you that follow Jesus, it might be a little bit of a difficult one to, to wrap your mind about, almost like a, a jigsaw piece that doesn't fit in the right space. What does it mean to be successful in the life of faith? Is that even a phrase that we should use? Is success and my faith two words that should actually come together? Is, is success really something I should be thinking about in my life of faith? 
Now, here's an opening thought, that sometimes we think about the life of faith as a compartment within our lives. Can I tell you, if you follow Jesus, if you're a Christian, your life of faith is your whole life. It's everything that you do. Everything that you do finds color in who you are as a follower of Jesus. So should we use this language, a successful life of faith? Now, as a starting point, maybe we should head to Scripture and say, okay, is there a precedent for a successful life of faith in Scripture? You know, one of the writers of the New Testament that, that I absolutely love is the Apostle Paul. And, and his writings is kind of peppered from time to time with this language around success or even achievement. And I want to take you to one of them in Philippians 3 verse 10. Did anyone have fun with our Bible reading through Philippians recently? Anyway, you would have found this verse. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. Listen to this. I press on towards the goal to win the prize. Now, let's just pause it right there for a moment. Now, that could be straight from the 1996 Bulls, right? 72 wins without a ring don't mean a thing. I press on towards the goal to win the prize. But then, of course, there's a second part to the verse, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So let's take a look at this verse, and let's locate it within a wider unit of thought that Paul's speaking into here in Philippians chapter 3. Now, in the world that Paul lived, when it came to the life of faith, there were really two main frameworks that people would fall into, and he's speaking into it here in the letter in Philippians. The first framework is one of my own ability and my own works, that for me to live successfully a life of faith, it's all about what I have to do. It's all about the things that I need to have sorted out within my own life. It's all about my moral behaviors. It's all about the, the religious practices, if you like, that define my faith. And Paul talks about that approach, that framework of faith as, as kind of getting it done in the flesh, in your own strength. And Paul himself speaks about this approach to faith. And he says, hey, if you want to think about faith and success in the life of faith through that lens, hey, I can do it with you. I can do it with you. Before I had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, this is what my faith was. And he's about to do an MJ style flex here when it comes to living a life of faith based on a framework of personal success and achievement. Listen to the, how he describes it. We're going to Philippians 3, verse 3. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, if someone else thinks they've got it all worked out, that in their own strength, they're getting it done, they're achieving in their life of faith, I was doing it better. This is what Paul's saying right here. I have uh, <laughs> more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, which was traditionally significant. If you don't know what circumcision is, I'm not going to explain it here. It's going to make me feel too uncomfortable. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee who were the most educated, the most influential in their knowledge of the Old Testament law. As for zeal, I, I persecuted the, the church, the early Christian church that was trying to bring this new idea around faith, which of course Jesus would transform his life and he would have a revelation that what the early church had was really what life needed to be all about. As for righteousness based on the law, and this is the key, as for righteousness based on my spiritual achievements, I was faultless. He's like, you want a pathway? You want a framework for faith that's all about what we need to do? Woo! I'm the greatest of all time. He's doing an MJ style flex, right? I'm the greatest of all time. I've got this stuff covered. But you get a sense 
that Paul's got another idea in mind because he's pressing on towards a goal that God calls him heavenward, that the focus wouldn't be about us, but it would be about something that's greater. So you get a sense that, that Paul's building to, building to something. And actually what he's describing here is the broken measures of success in the life of faith, which once upon a time defined his life. Now here are the two problems with a life of faith that's built around the measures of, of success and a framework of faith when it comes to my personal ability, the personal things I can do. Here's the central thought, is that it's all about achievement. It's all about my achievements. If you imagine that, that my faith might boil down to a list of my moral behaviors or moral achievements, I might say, hey, I don't swear at people. That's a moral achievement. I don't punch people. That's a moral achievement. I don't steal. That's a moral achievement. You know, I, I, I don't do those, those naughty things, and that's a moral achievement. Or maybe I say it's about my religious practices. I go to church on Sunday. Tick, that's a moral achievement. I read my Bible once every day. Tick, that's a moral achievement. I pray every day. Hey, you know, when I go to church, I even raise my hands when I'm led in times of praise and worship. That is a religious achievement. Boom, boom, boom. And my framework of faith starts to get built around my personal achievements in the arenas of morality or religious practices. Now, here's the problem with a framework of achievement when it comes to our faith. You know what makes achievement powerful? Comparison. You know why we have conversations around MJ or LeBron James, and we call them the greatest of all time? You know what makes them incredible? Comparison with other players. Because compared to other players, they're amazing. Now, I wonder sometimes, do we do this within our own lives? We build a framework of success based on achievement that is empowered by comparing ourselves to others. You know, when I was 14 years old, I believed in Jesus, and I loved praising Jesus, even as a 14-year-old. But can I tell you an experience I had? I was, uh, I was going along to our youth ministry, the youth ministry that's still going today, True North Youth. I love it. And, and we had like a, a praise and worship night, and I was excited about it, and I went along to this praise and worship night. And uh, I was standing next to my friend, and, and the night was going on. I had an awesome time just, just praising Jesus, grateful for what he'd done in my life. And then I looked over to my friend at some point, and my friend, he was doing the exact same thing. He was pursuing Jesus. His eyes, eyes were closed so he could focus on, on maybe what God was speaking into his life. And, and he had his hands raised, right? You know, that religious achievement. He was a man. His hands were raised. And then I looked at his mouth, and it was doing this. He was chewing gum while praising Jesus. And something in my 14-year-old mind said, what an outrage. This dude is chewing gum during praise and worship. And I looked around looking for someone to like, can you believe this guy? Can you believe this? He's chewing gum during worship. Does he even care about Jesus? And I kept looking around and thinking, what is up with this guy? Now, who knows where that came from? Maybe it was like a, a school teacher that told me, chewing gum in class is disrespectful. Don't do it. So I layered it into this religious practice. And you know why I enjoyed doing it? You know what took my mind to say, get a load of this guy, chewing gum during praise and worship. You know why I wanted to do it? Because by comparison, I had a framework of faith with that little religious practice, that little religious spirit that said, he's chewing gum. Guess who's not chewing gum? this guy right here. 
And by comparison, I was like, okay, I'm moving forward in my faith well because I'm looking at what this guy's doing and I can see that in my life based by comparison, I'm doing well. Achievement leads to comparison. Now, here's the problem about comparison in a life of faith. Think about where my friend's eyes are focused. Sure, he's chewing gum. Who cares? Where are his eyes focused? On Jesus. I'm not chewing gum. Who cares? Where are my eyes focused? On him and myself. When we have a framework of success in the life of faith that's based on our personal ability, our personal achievements, we're drawn to comparison, which ultimately will take our eyes off Christ. So this is what Paul saying, hey, these are broken measures of success in the life of faith. And here's what Paul concludes based on this whole balance. And he's going to say this in Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. He's saying, this was my life. I was all about these lists of achievements in my life of faith. But whatever, starting in verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You're going to hear that phrase, knowing Christ, a few times in these verses. Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. I consider them garbage. All that stuff that defined my faith, it just doesn't matter anymore. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So this whole idea of living a a successful life based on our personal achievements, our personal merit, this was at the heart of of the the Pharisees, which are mentioned here. They were the the religious leaders of the day. And and they they were incredibly focused, passionate people. But things just got clicked a few degrees off the right center. And here's what they were trying to do. The life of the Pharisee, the life of of this kind of success, personal achievement, orientated faith is about one central goal. The central goal of that faith was to make myself holy before God. And they were passionate about it. So they would work incredibly hard that the purpose of my life is to make myself holy before who God is. That's why I stick to these religious practices. That's why I pursue this morality in my life. Now, can I be really clear that striving for morality and growing in character and pursuing spiritual disciplines are incredibly powerful and life-giving things. But when they become the central framework, it takes our eyes off Jesus. And so the Pharisees, the central achievement of faith was to attain holiness before God. But here's what Paul's saying, that the central achievement of faith, to be holy before God, has already been won on our behalf by Jesus. So the most significant measurement of success in the life of faith, to make myself holy before God, I could never do it. And it doesn't matter because Jesus has already done it. That the central measuring stick of faith is being one in the name of Jesus. So this changes some things for me, as it changed some things for Paul on the road to Damascus. That self-centered achievement is exchanged for Christ-centered direction. The framework of success is now not about me, not about what I have to do, but about the direction of knowing what Christ has done in me. Once and for all.
This crystallizes for Paul in chapter 3 in verse 10. Listen to this. The direction, the new direction of Paul's life, the new framework for faith and life lived well. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participate in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. So Paul's going to talk about this new direction as being defined by three things here. The first is that direction is defined by purpose, and that purpose is to simply know Jesus. To simply know Jesus. You know, for a moment, real quick, I want to pause and focus on the life of Jesus as we continue to think about this framework of success in the life of faith. I want you to think about the public ministry of Jesus, which is the, the, the three years of teaching and ministry that he does that, that's recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels of our New Testament. Now, Jesus lived such an incredible life that one of the Gospel authors candidly remarks that Jesus did so many incredible things that the world would not have enough space to contain the books to list all of those incredible things things. And it's a dramatic statement to illustrate that Jesus was amazing. Everywhere he went, he did amazing things. He was a Jewish rabbi, a teacher that people would go to, to hear hear him speak about who God is and what it means to connect with God. And by the end of his three-year public ministry, something truly amazing happened that a massive proportion of the nation of Israel at that time wanted to make him their national king. Now, in the world that Jesus lived, in the ancient world, when a nation wants to make you their king, you know you've made it. You know that you have lived an incredibly influential, successful life. By every metric of success in the ancient world to become king, that was like, that was right up here. But of course... Jesus lived his life with a greater defining purpose, which was to make me holy before God, to make you holy before God, to make all nations, all generations holy before God. He didn't care about the metrics of success that were around him because he had a greater defining purpose in who God was and who God was calling him to be. It was almost like he was immune to the broken measures of success that were all around him because of the greater purpose that he had in God. You know, can I tell you something that's true for our lives as well? That when we place our faith in Jesus and we begin living out of the right purpose, it makes us immune to some of the broken measures in life that we can pursue. It makes us immune to looking to our left, to our right, for a sense of comparison to see how we're going. It makes us immune to insecurity or pride because now we have a new direction defined by a purpose, which is simply knowing Jesus. And when knowing Jesus is the core purpose of your life, remember, your life of faith is your entire life, that knowing Jesus brings shape and beauty and color to every part of who we are, to who you are as a parent, to who you are in your marriage, to who you are in your workplace, that the life of Christ is expressed in all of those places because now your life is governed by a greater defining purpose, which is the name of Jesus Christ. Can someone say amen? Or in this case, type amen in the comments. That we have new purpose in Jesus. And that's what Paul talks about, that my direction, 
I want to know Christ. But of course, in Philippians 3 verse 10, there's another layer. He says, I don't just want to know Christ. I don't just want to have that direction set in my life, but I want to know the power of his resurrection in me. You know, when Paul uses this phrase, to live with the power of resurrection, the word that comes to my mind is to live out his purpose, ignited with passion, ignited with passion. Did you know today is Pentecost Sunday? Now, Pentecost Sunday is a a significant date in the Christian calendar where we look back to Acts chapter 2 and remember that through the ministry of Christ upon the cross, the Holy Spirit of God, the presence of God, the power of God is available to each and every one of us, that the Holy Spirit of God now resides within the human heart. And if the Spirit of God is in my heart, the resurrected Christ is in my heart, then the power of the resurrection flows through my veins. This is what Paul's talking about. He's saying the living, breathing spirit, power, and presence of God is in my life. So he has a direction defined by a purpose to know Jesus. But sometimes we can have a direction and we can move forward in that direction and we can kind of walk a little bit lethargically. You know, sometimes we can walk in that direction a little bit like a toddler who doesn't really want to go in that direction. And we can kind of, you know, and kind of shuffle our feet and keep going in that direction. But Paul's saying, no, I don't just want to head in a direction. I want to move forward with passion in the direction that Christ has for my life. I want it to be as if the power of his resurrection flows within my heart, flows within my soul, that every arena of my life finds radical transformation through the power of the resurrected Christ in me. Do you know where that passion comes from? The presence of God. It comes from the presence of God. There is no other answer to where passion comes from in the life of faith other than simple proximity to the presence of God. Did you know there is no person, no force, nothing, no power in human history that can separate me from the presence of God except one dude, me. I'm the only thing that can separate me from the divine resurrection power of God in my life. My Bible tells me that nothing else in all the world can separate me from the love and the power of God. Not heights, nor depths, nothing in creation can separate me from God's love except me distancing myself from the presence of God. So you might be joining with me, sharing in this conversation around Scripture, and you're like, yeah, I place my faith in Jesus. My life has a direction. My life has purpose in knowing who Christ is. But that, that passion that you're talking about, that resurrection power that Paul's talking about, I feel like it's not there. Then the only answer for me, the only answer for you, is to think, how can I pursue more of God's presence in my life? But for Paul, still, when he thinks about this framework, if we continue to use that word success, this framework of success in the life of faith, There's direction defined by a purpose, knowing Christ, ignited with passion that comes from an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But then he talks again, and we can't forget this last bit, Philippians 3 verse 10, and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You know what Paul's talking about, that this direction, this pursuit of Christ in his life 
it requires perseverance. It requires grit in the life of faith. To say, no matter what I encounter, no matter what I experience, nothing is going to stop me pressing on with perseverance through the power of Jesus in my life. And this is coming from a guy who faced literal persecution because of who he was as a follower of Christ. He'd been imprisoned, he'd been beaten, and eventually he lost his life because of his faith in Jesus. To live a life of faith with grit. To live a life of faith with grit. You know where grit comes from? It comes from purpose and passion. That's where grit comes from. We can endure incredible things as people if we're defined by purpose and passion. My prayer for my life, my prayer for your life, is that your faith wouldn't just be a feature of who you are. It wouldn't just be a compartment within the many compartments of who you are. But your life of faith would be who you are. And it would be defined only by who he is. And that there would be a well of passion that comes from the indwelling of his Holy Spirit that would allow you and I to never, never, never give up. You know, today, as part of our service, we're going to take communion together. And I'm going to invite the the team to come and join me. And they're going to lead us in a time of reflection during communion. And as we take communion, I want you to hold the ideas of this passage of Scripture, the questions of this passage of Scripture. Hold them in your heart and say, God, is there a part of me that is missing out on the fullness of what it means to follow you? Is there a part of me that's focused maybe too much on myself and what I need to do? Is there a part of me that's too focused on the people on my left or on my right? Jesus, I want to be focused on you. Now, if you're new to church, new to faith, I hope being a part of this conversation has given you something of a framework of what faith in Christ means to someone like me. And I pray that you would know the incredible power of Jesus in your life as well. You know, when we take communion as a church, it's based on a moment in the life of Jesus. He shares a meal with his disciples shortly before he's taken away to be crucified upon the cross. Remember that purpose that he had to make you holy before God so that what my life looks like, what your life looks like, doesn't matter. We've been made holy before God because of Jesus upon the cross. Right before that, he sits down with his disciples and he shares a symbolic meal. And at the table, there's bread and there's wine. And both of those items were symbolic of the sacrifice that Jesus was about to lay down upon the cross. His body broken like bread. His his life, his blood poured out like wine. And Jesus endured all of that to win on my behalf what I could never achieve myself, holiness before God. This is what you need to know this morning, that you are holy because Christ has made you holy when you put your faith in Jesus by grace. A holiness I can never achieve on my own, but it has been won on my behalf. Now, because of what Christ has done, 
I want to invite you to live your life with a new purpose, a new direction defined by knowing who Jesus is. And as we share communion together, we're going to center ourselves in that purpose, knowing Christ, knowing the power of His presence, His Holy Spirit, and that to live that life of faith with grit, with perseverance, say the most important, most powerful thing in my life is my connection to Jesus. So hopefully you, you've received the information already to, to grab a, a piece of bread or some juice or even some water. And, and we're going to share in a symbolic meal of communion that anchors us in who Jesus is, in that direction of our lives, the direction of faith of knowing Christ. I want to pray for you. And then the band's going to lead us in an awesome time of praise and worship. If you want to chew gum, you can. Joking. They're going to lead us in an awesome time of praise and worship. And we're going to take communion together. So you might be gathered in a room with your family. You might be, might be watching by yourself. But here's what I want you to know. There are people all over the place tuned in and doing the exact same thing. And when we gather around communion, we gather as the body. So I want to thank you so much for being here present in this moment. And the privilege that it is to take communion with you today, even though we're doing it in this online space. What a powerful thing. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for that direction in your life. To know Jesus. Ignited passion through the power of the Holy Spirit. To press on with perseverance. And I want you to reflect on that. Pray through that as we share in communion together. Let me pray for you. God, I want to thank you for every person. For every family gathered here this morning, Lord. God, I pray that in this moment the power of your Holy Spirit would fill their hearts anew. Lord, I pray for anyone in this moment that hasn't placed their faith in you, Jesus, that Jesus, you would be present in their life and you would reveal yourself to them by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we want to thank you for the, the miracle of the cross and that your Holy Spirit is with us always. And Jesus, I pray that in this shared moment of communion, as a church together here at True North. God, I pray that we would have a new grounded purpose in simply knowing you that would show up and color every aspect of our life. Jesus, I pray that you would ignite passion in the name of Jesus through the power of your spirit in this moment. And Jesus, I pray that you would give us the capacity for incredible grit and perseverance in our lives of faith. Jesus, be present with us as we share this meal together, this holy communion, where we are reminded that we are made holy by the name that is above every other name. Amen.